0: So we are, um, we are in the Gospel of Luke, we're in chapter 2, and last week we began to talk about the birth of uh, Jesus Christ. And we're going to continue that on today, the weekend before Christmas. And, um, you know, we're, we're in this Gospel written by Luke, uh, kind of contracted, we think, by a guy named Theophilus to lay out the facts. So that we know what the facts are uh, concerning Jesus Christ. You really get this feeling at the beginning of, of, of Luke that he is he's trying to help us understand. This is not a myth and this is not a fable. So he's gonna give us uh, names and, and, and kind of touch points in history so we can connect the story. You know, we, he tells us that Caesar Augustus was ruling the Roman Empire at the time. So we kind of know about when that was. And Quirinius was uh, involved as a governor at the time. He talks about Herod. Um, some people that we can make connections to and, and, and places where we can see and we, you know, we looked last week at some pictures where um, supposedly Jesus was born. And he's just trying to help us understand this is real. This is history. This is fact. This actually happened. Um, he's also introduced us to some people who outside of the gospel we, wouldn't, you know, we really wouldn't know about. People like Mary. We've talked about Mary who was probably 1314 13, 14-year-old teenage girl who uh, the angel Gabriel appears to her. She's betrothed to a young man named Joseph, you know, probably 14, 15 years old, a carpenter, just a kid. And this angel says, uh, Gabriel says to Mary, you found favor with God, and uh, you are going to give birth, and it's going to be a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. And you remember Mary, she was like, well, but how can this be? Because um, I'm a virgin, and I don't think that works, you know? And the angel's like, well, God's going to do a miracle. And uh, the Holy Spirit's gonna work a miracle in you, and you're gonna become pregnant and have a baby, and, and you know. And by the way, he says, you know, you're going to be a virgin, so woo that'll be exciting. And then, of course, people don't believe her. And we know later on, we'll look later on in her life, like 30 years later, people still don't believe it. People still think that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Um, this is something that follows him his whole life and, and that people talk about her, her whole life. When she tells Joseph he doesn't believe her and he decides to divorce her, but an angel appears to him and says, yeah, I wouldn't do that if I were you because <laughs> it really is from God. And so... Um, We know about this time, there was a census being done in the Roman Empire. Uh, They did a census for one of two reasons, Uh, for taxes um, or for the army to see how many men could be serving in the army at the time or how many will be old enough in the near future to serve in the army. So they had to travel to Bethlehem, which was their ancestral home about a hundred miles from where they were. Now Mary's great with child. She's nine months pregnant. She's ready. She's about ready to give birth. She's got to travel a hundred miles roughly, um, maybe on a donkey, I don't know, um, maybe walking, but it probably takes them about a week to get there. Once they get there, it turns out Bethlehem is a little bit like Washugal. There's a Best Western and a Rama, and that's it. That's all there is. And they're booked up, and there's nowhere to go, so they, uh, they're sleeping out in a, probably where animals are living, in a stable somewhere, we think. Um, historians think it was actually in a. Cave uh, where Mary gives birth. There's no doctor. There's no hospital bed. There's no P.R.L. There. She gives birth, and Joseph is there. And, and when the baby is born, they take it and put it in a manger, which is a which is a feeding trough for animals. And this is this is uh, Jesus' first throne, if you will. This humble child, the Son of God. Well, today we're going to carry on the story, and we're going to look at some characters that really would not be expected. In a story like this, and we'll talk about why that is, but we're gonna look at some shepherds.
1: It was a night like any other night, except for that angel. Ain't seen nothing like it before or since. Us shepherds, we don't get a lot of excitement out there in the pasture, but that angel, it was so bright, so beautiful. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Sam, you've been out in that pasture just a little bit too long and you'd be correct but that all changed when that angel came right up to us and the angel said don't be afraid (laughs) i was like too late (laughs) and then the angel said no i wrote it down i need to get this right hold on um okay the angel said um milk bread, no that's my grocery list then the angel said i have good news of a great joy that shall be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior which is christ the lord and then the angel said he's lying in a manger wrapped in cloth go find him okie dokie so we're all sitting around and then one of the shepherds thing was steve he's like hey what are we doing let's get out of here let's go to bethlehem so we hightailed it out of there and we found that beautiful baby. I'll tell you, I was a different man after that. God chose me. And nobody's ever chosen me for anything. I'll never forget what that angel said though. The angel said, I bring good news to all people that means you too.
0: So on the night that Jesus is born, an angel appears and brings the very first announcement of the birth of the Son of God. And the honor of this goes to shepherds, which is something that uh, you would not expect if you lived back then. Um, If you knew shepherds and what people thought of shepherds, in verse 8 of chapter 2 it says this, now, in the same region there were shepherds out in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." This is the night that Jesus is born, and it's an unidentified angel, which is interesting because up till now, we've known who the angels are that are involved. This angel delivers uh, the first birth announcement to shepherds. And you have to understand, in those days, shepherds were, well, they were weird. They, uh, They lived outside of town with animals. They smelled like sheep. They... They were uh, illiterate. They were uncouth. Um, they weren't the people you invited to your parties or to your house. Their job made them religious outcasts. They couldn't go uh, to the temple and worship God there like, um, like most Jews. They were actually considered almost at the bottom um, socially in terms of social class. The only group of people that were considered below them socially were lepers, right? That, that's like the only people who were below them. Other than that, it's, uh, it's shepherds. They were considered untrustworthy. If, if a shepherd saw somebody murdered, if a shepherd saw a crime committed, that shepherd could not go to court and testify because they were considered liars and, and untrustworthy. These are shepherds, right? And this, these are the people, think about this, these are the people that the first birth announcement comes to now, we might expect in, in our human way of thinking, like if God really wanted to make this a big deal, like maybe he would have the angel go to the high priest. Because everyone looked up to the high, high priest. If the high priest uh, sees an angel and the angel says, you know, um, the Son of God has been born tonight. And his name is Jesus and he's in Bethlehem. If the, if the high priest came out and said... God has spoken to me, and, and Jesus is the Son of God, you can bet that the nation of Israel would have just fallen in, in line, or maybe we might expect that it would have, imagine if the angel appeared to Caesar Augustus, like, you know, let's just go right to the top, let's, let's go to Augustus, and, 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 you know, he could have appeared and said, hey, Caesar Augustus, like, you're, you're a loser, but you could redeem yourself, you know, like, just Jesus is Lord, and let's get this thing together, but, and he could have uh, appeared to a celebrity, uh, You know, today he could have Maybe he'd appear to Bill Gates, right? Because he's the most admired man in the world. And, you know, if Bill's on board, then he can go and have a news conference and say, God spoke to me and I saw an angel, right? I'm not crazy. And, and uh, you know, and, and Jesus is the Son of God. And this, always, this way of thinking reminds me when I was at... When I was a youth pastor years ago, you know, you'd go to these seminars. You'd you'd buy these books on on how to grow a youth group. And and the whole prevailing uh, theory was the same. If you want to reach a high school for Jesus Christ, here's what you do. You focus. If you want to reach that school, you focus on the popular kids. You focus on the athletes. You focus on the student body leaders, on the cheerleaders. Because if you win all the popular people then everyone else in the school, like dumb sheep, will just follow them to your youth group. That's, that's, that's the way it works. And yet, and yet God comes to shepherds. God doesn't come to leaders. God doesn't come to famous people. God doesn't come to, to, to rich people. God comes to shepherds. God comes to social outcasts. He, gives, uh, he comes to a teenage girl who's illiterate and poor. Jesus is going to come to sinners. Jesus is going to come to tax collectors. He's going to hang out with the poor. He's not going to hang out with the rich. He's going to hang out with the, with the people who are at the bottom. He's, the, the announcement comes to shepherds. And the announcement is, is good news. In the, in the Greek there for, for good news is gospel. When he says, I bring you good news, that's one word. Uangelezo is the Greek word. It means gospel. That's what we get the word gospel from. It's good news. And it's good news for all the people. Because everyone needs good news. Everyone needs Jesus. Even shepherds need Jesus. And the people that you live with need Jesus. And the people in your neighborhood need Jesus. And the people... In our schools, and the teachers, and the students, they all need Jesus too. And the people that you don't like, and your enemies need Jesus. And the shepherds in your life that you try to avoid need Jesus. And the people at Mary Jane's house of glass need Jesus too. And, and people in Portland need Jesus. And, and, and the gospel is so big, it's not... In fact, you know, once a year I go with some people to Nicaragua, and we go down there and we share Jesus, because it's even too big for this nation. We need to take it to the whole world. It's good news, but don't miss this. The very first announcement of Jesus' birth goes to low-life, outcast shepherds. Almost like God is trying to tell us something. Be very careful about withholding the gospel from shepherds in your life. Who are the people in your life that are outcasts, that you don't want to talk to, that you don't want to have anything to do with, and yet they need Jesus? Jesus came for all people. And this announcement comes to shepherds. And the good news is not a propositional truth. It's not some kind of theory. It's a person. The good news that this angel brings is the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Here's the good news. For unto you is born, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. For unto you is born this day. In the city of David, that's Bethlehem. For unto you is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Three important words that he uses to describe who Jesus is. He's the Savior, he's Christ, and he's Lord. Three important words. The first word here is the word Savior. Simply means one who rescues, one who delivers, one who saves. Gabriel told Mary, you'll have a son, you'll name him Jesus, which means he is our Savior. Now, when we talk about Jesus being our Savior, in so many parts of Christianity today, this idea of Jesus saving us has been so, so watered down. A lot of times today when, when, when pastors and and, and, and Christian books talk about Jesus saving us. They, they talk about like, oh, Jesus has come to rescue us from stress, right? Like God doesn't want us to be stressed out. God just wants us to be, you know, peaceful. So Jesus has come because we live in a stressful world and he doesn't want us to be stressed. So he came to rescue us from traffic jams because traffic's just awful. It's like of the devil. And so Jesus came So if you're in a traffic jam, you just tell Jesus that you don't like traffic and he'll come down and rescue you. If you got to go shopping this week sometime, you know, like heaven help you. If you still have to go Christmas shopping and you know, you're driving through the parking lot. For a lot of Christians, this is all God is now. God, just be the savior of a parking spot. I can't find a parking spot. I want to park up front. I don't want to walk all the way. Oh Jesus, please. Parking spot opens up. That's Jesus. He's my savior. He gives me a good parking spot. He gave me the save me from having to walk, you know, all the way through the parking lot. Or here's a lot of times what we hear now, and I hear this in churches, I hear this from pastors, Jesus came to save us from other messed up people, right? Like we live in a world full of messed up people who are sinners, and they messed up the world, and it's all those sinners around you that have complicated your life. And so Jesus has come to rescue you from all the sinners around you. And can I say that while, while all of those things may be a byproduct, I mean, you know. Jesus may give you a good parking spot every now and then, but that's not primarily why he came. He came to save you, not from other people's sin. He came to save you from your sin. He came to save you from from your transgressions. And so often in the church, we've forgotten that. He came to save us from, from us, and he did it through the incarnation, God in the flesh who came down here and and, and he took on flesh and he lived a life among us, but he lived a perfect life. He was tempted, like we've all been tempted, but he faced all that without sin. And the Bible says that, that he took our sin upon himself and he paid the debt for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, let me read this for you. It says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He had never sinned. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We often refer to this as the great exchange. That Jesus lived the perfect life and, and we did not. And what God does on the cross is, is Jesus takes our sin and he offers us to us his perfect life. His righteousness. Jesus came to save us from us. From our sin. But he's not just savior. It says he's also the Christ. Now, that word Christ means anointed or chosen one. So somehow, we don't know all all how this works, but somehow the Trinity had had a discussion. um, And in their wisdom, they talked about this. How will we redeem mankind? How will we do this? The Trinity could have chosen to do this any way they wanted. But somehow it was determined that Jesus, the second part of the Trinity, would be the one to come to earth. It was, he was chosen. He was anointed. He, he would be the one who would come down. He would be the one who would live among us and, and who would die for us and raise from the dead. And be the mediators we talked about a few weeks ago, between God and man. Jesus is our Savior. He saves us from ourselves. He is our Christ. He is the Chosen One. And He is Lord. And the word Lord is a, kind of, a in a generic sense, it means somebody who is supreme in authority. Back in the, in, in the days of Jesus, um, it would be used as a title of respect for someone who had a position of authority. Um, slaves would call their masters Lord. It was used to, uh, to refer to somebody to whom you were subservient, sometimes even towards a boss or an employee. But here, it's a divine title. And the rest of the New Testament fills out for us what Lord means. But, but basically, to call Jesus Lord is to call him God. Uh, it means that he rules. That he, is, he rules over all nations. He rules over all people, over all beings, over angels and, and human beings. He rules over heaven. He rules over earth. Who rules over hell? Sometimes people think, well, God rules in heaven and Satan rules in hell. It's a little Satan man club down there, and, and he kind of does it and tortures people. And and actually, the Bible says no, he doesn't. Satan doesn't rule anything. Jesus rules all, and and he rules you and he rules me. And at Christmas time, see, here's the interesting thing to me at Christmas, and I've been thinking about this. You know, you to you go to stores and you you know you hear the music playing and 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 people are caroling and singing. And singing words like Oh come, let us adore Him, Christ the what, the Lord." And the Lord—that's a really strong word there. Like we sing, "Joy to the world, the Lord is come," and, and "Jesus, Lord, at Thy birth." And and what really gets me sometimes is when I see like non-Christians and unbelievers and atheists who sing these songs. And I, I've always wondered, like, how can they sing those songs if they knew what it meant? See, the the word "Lord" is meant to be a divisive word. The word Lord, when it's attached to Jesus, is the kind of word that would either make you worship him or would make you completely oppose him. This is, there's no middle comfy ground when we call Jesus Lord. But, and yet, in our in our culture today, a lot of people use that word, but it means nothing to them. And, and I thought it might be good for us to take a few minutes to consider when we talk about Lord and Savior, Um, What it is that makes Christianity different from every other religion, from every other other philosophy in the world to kind of maybe help us understand what we mean when we say Savior and Lord. Now, sociologists say that there's basically five worldviews in the Western world today. And a worldview is just a a particular philosophy of life. Um, It determines the way you look at life and and the way you look at God and and the way you interpret events around you. Now, the first of these philosophies um, in the Western world is atheism. Uh, You know what atheism is? It just means um, no God. That's literally what the word means. A meaning not. Theism, referring to God or theos. The, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word for God. Atheism means that there's no God, that no one created you, uh, that there was no plan for your life, that there is no um, life after death, that this life is it, it's all there is, that you have no soul, that the world is nothing but material. So the philosophy of materialism rises out of atheism. The philosophy of materialism says the only thing that is, that is real is that which is material. So get all the stuff you can in life because once you die, that's it. There's no God to deliver you to heaven. There's no life after death. Uh, Bertrand Russell, one of the great atheistic philosophers, and he's great (laughs) like this. um, He basically, let me read you a quote uh, from him. This is one you've probably heard, pretty well known. It's, It's actually part of a much bigger thing that he wrote. But he said this. He said, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration of humanity, all the noonday brightness of human genius, are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system. Woo, Near what he's saying there? All right you catching on here? And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only, and I like this, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Well, there's an inspiring set of words. You know what he's saying there? He's just saying there's no hope for any of you for any of you. Like, if you're here today and you're healthy, he would say, big deal, you're still gonna die, right? You're still, I don't care how how well you eat. I don't care how many miles you run. I don't care how much you work out. I don't care if you're gluten-free or don't eat meat or what. It doesn't matter. hundred years from now, you'll all be dead. You'll all be the same. There's no hope for you. He might say, you know, if you have cancer and you get chemo and you beat it, you're still gonna die, right? Big deal. If you if you find someone who loves you, if you get married, if you have kids, if you have friends, you're gonna lose them all. Every one of them are gonna die, and you're gonna die. And if you have a job that you like and it's the job of your dreams, you're gonna lose it. You can't keep it forever. If you find a cure for cancer, you understand? Big deal. In in the long in the scheme of things, it won't matter at all. Because everyone's going to die. And the universe is gonna devolve, and that's just it. Woohoo, let's go have a party. Because atheism is nothing but despair, despair that only leads to depression, hopelessness self medicating like right like who in their right mind would wanna live and just kind of have to deal with all this if there's no point to it let's just go get involved in porn let's get involved in consumerism let's just buy as much stuff as we can violence whatever it's all the same let's get involved in entertainment that helps distract us and even even suicide i remember talking to an atheist one time and, and he said to me he said cuz i told him i'm like if, if if atheism were true we all ought to just go jump off bridges right now right And he was like, he told me, he said, you know, it's not the suicidal people I worry about. They get it. It's the people who think everything's, it's the people who have hope that worry me. That's atheism, right? Hey, if there's no God, and if you're you're sick, and if you're suffering, and if life has no purpose, if suffering has no purpose, then why would you endure suffering? Why not just end your life? Which sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Kind of, doesn't it sound like where our society is going? If you're sick and you're suffering, why not just in your life? Because w- there's no purpose to suffering. It's atheism. Then there's monism. Monism is also a big part of a philosophy in the Western world. Monism is, simply means one or all is one. Uh, there's different uh, kind of varieties of monism. There's pantheism and there's panentheism. They're, they're slightly different. In pantheism, it says that uh, everything is God. In panentheism, it means that God is in everything. What, it, what, what they all come down to is this, that, that God is not a person. God is an energy or a, or a force. Right? God is a force and, and, uh, and God is energy and, and everything makes up God. So God is not a person, but it's, a, it's an energy inside everyone and it ties us all together. And, and when the energy in someone dies, that energy goes somewhere else and into someone else or something else and reincarnated into something else maybe. But it says this, you didn't come from God because there is no God, there's no creator. You won't be returning to God there's no judge uh, there's no salvation there's no actually there's no good or evil because it's all the same there's no love hate peace violence and justice it's all just different sides of the same coin but there's no god there's no god or person who loves you or who will who will rescue you no one will rescue you that's monism and then there's deism now deism is a little different because in deism they say there is a god but he doesn't intervene there's a, God, uh, there's a God who made the world uh, and then left. It's kind of like a deism has been compared to a, uh, a clockmaker. Maybe you've heard that. Um, a guy designs a clock, winds it up, and walks away. I'll just let the clock wind down and let it do its own thing, and I'm not going to wind it up again or intervene. And there's, a deism basically says that this is, this is how we got here, that there's a God who, who made us, he created us, but we sinned against him, we messed everything up, God was like, well, forget that. I'll just, you know, I'll let you guys, I'll see how it all plays out. I'll just, you know, see what happens with you guys. And he doesn't get involved and he doesn't listen to your prayers. He doesn't answer your prayers. Sociologists tell us that this is the prevailing spirituality of America today. And in fact, if you do your homework, you'll find it was really the prevailing um, spirituality of of many of the founding fathers of this country as well. Um, You come from God, but he's not paying attention to you. He's not particularly interested. He's bored with you. uh, And who can blame him? Um, He's not with you. He won't rescue you. When you die, he might be there. He might not be there. It's kind of like the dad who just walked out on you and decided to go in another direction. He's just left you to your own devices. In deism, basically, it says, if you're going to get saved, you're going to have to save yourself. That's really theism, if you will. The difference between deism and theism is, in, in theism, God is involved, but he doesn't save. So in deism, he's not involved. In theism, God's involved. He, uh, he's holy, he's good, he's a lot of those things that we would, that we would talk about. Um, when we die, he will judge us, but he won't save us. Theism says, God will not be your savior. In theism, you have to save yourself. So theism is where we get uh, many religions of the world, many philosophies of the world. So a lot of different, there's, there's uh, polytheism and, and monotheism, uh, but they're all basically theism. It's where you get religion. You're going to have to save yourself. There's a God, and he, and he hears you, and he cares about you, but he's not going to save you. So you need religion or or you need to be a good person or you need to do the right rituals. Um, And it leads to, the thing about theism is there's every brand of theism under the sun and it just leads to the craziest stuff. Like there are religions that will say, you know, in order to get saved, you're going to have to, you're going to have to wear your holy underwear. You're going to, our God isn't going to accept you. You're going to have to get baptized for dead people or you have to pray a scripted prayer. Don't be making nothing up. You, you pray the skip, scripted prayer. You pray it five times a day when they tell you to pray. You face east. You got to go to Mecca. You can't eat meat or you have to eat meat or you can't eat bacon or you got to suffer for your sins through reincarnation. And, and I'm reading around a religion this week where they believe that spiritual enlightenment can only, can only come to people, I'm not making this up, can only come to people when you smoke pot. That's the only way. This is a religion. And now, of course, it's like legal to practice that religion in Washington, right? So you have to smoke weed and get in this higher plane. And, and, but, but bottom line is this. You have to do something to save yourself. In theism, you have to earn it. And in theism, it always leads to one of two extremes. When you have to save yourself, it either leads to Pride and self-righteousness or despair, right? In fact, we see this even in the Gospels. Like It can lead to pride. People who are like, I believe there's a God. I believe he cares about me, but he's not going to save me. I believe he's involved, but the one thing he's not going to do is save me. So these are people who say, I have to earn God's love. I have to earn salvation. So I have to do this stuff. Whatever that stuff is. And every group has its own list of stuff. I've got to pray the right words. I've got to pray the right formula. Or, I, or I'm not supposed to pray a formula. Or I've got to wear the right clothes. I've got to wear nice clothes, expensive clothes. Or there are people like you, you, you know, you have to wear um, uniforms. You have to wear robes. Or, or you have to wear, you know, inexpensive. You have to wear humble clothes. You have to wear rags. There's a religion that, that teaches that. Um, or, you, you know, you have to sing the right songs or, or, or not sing those songs. Or you've got to give the right amount of money to God. Or you can't go to heaven. You have to give him 10%. Some say it's 27%, some say it's 33%. Whatever that is, whatever your religion says, you got to give God the right amount. You got to, when you worship, you got to raise your hands or don't raise your hands because God doesn't like that depending on your religion. Um, or you got to be a nice person. You got to be a good person. You got to give money to beggars. You got to be better than, I don't know, half the people in the world or, you know, God's going to let half in and half not in or whatever. But the result is always this. You work hard, you do the stuff, and, and you end up, smug and self-righteous and proud and judgmental. And we'll see that in the gospels. It's full of people who believed that you had, they were theists. You have to earn your salvation. And Jesus came along and said, wrong, 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 wrong. And he called them again, proud and self-righteous because that's what they were. On the other hand, it can lead to despair. <laughs> like people were like, I try, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I tried to do the right stuff. I tried to pray the right prayers. I'd Tried to pray at the right time. I tried to, to fast on day one. I, I ended up eating an entire pizza on my own. I'm a failure. I had a hard day at work. I went home. I yelled at the kids. I kicked the dog. I, I preached in red shoes. You should never do that. Now I'll never go to heaven. And God has, God has rejected me. And I, I hear this from people. I even, it, it amazes me how I have discussions like this with people who even go to Gateway, who will say to me, I feel like God's rejected me. I'll say, why has he rejected you? Because I sinned, because I blew it, because I kicked a dog, because I ate a whole pizza, whatever it is. And then they'll say like, and I'm sick, and I think I'm sick because God is mad at me. I think I lost my job because God's angry with me. I, you know, he was angry, so he's going to make me marry someone ugly or lose my hair or have to have a cat, not a dog for a pet or whatever it is. But I see this, I tell you this because I see this underlying dark current among Christians at times who feel that God's kind of like that that God's going to just punish you without realizing that you will never earn God's favor by trying to be good that's not Christianity that's theism and it always leads to pride or it leads to despair which in my mind actually makes more sense but then there's Christianity which is not the same it's completely different here's why In Christianity, we have Jesus who is our Savior and our Christ and our Lord. It changes everything. If Jesus is Savior and Christ and Lord, he is creator. He is eternal. He is sovereign. He's the one who gave us life. He gave us moral commands so that we we might enjoy life and enjoy him. We sinned against him, not just Adam and Eve, but every one of us. We traded intimacy with God for for hiding from him in the garden. And we messed up uh, relationships. We messed up our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. We messed up the environment. We messed up work. And we have weeds now. and, and, And childbirth is more difficult and all that stuff because of our sin. But here's where Christianity is different. We sinned, but God did not walk out on us. Even though we sinned against him. Instead, he reached out to us. Even in the garden. Remember that? Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. What did God do? Was God up in heaven going, oh, I can't believe this. No, he went down to them. He sought them. Where are you? He sought them out. And then he sent prophets and promises and miracles and intervening. And eventually God sent a baby boy who was born of a virgin. His name was Emmanuel, which means God, what? With us, right? Not God mad at us, not God walked away from us, not God as the Father who left us, God with us, God seeking us, God coming after us. As a Savior who took our sins upon Himself, who died on a cross for us, who rose from the dead and conquered sin and conquered death for us. And when we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, here's what's really important. This is what makes Christianity different. When we place our, trace, our, our faith in Christ, He saves us us. He saves us. It is a gift of grace. We do not save ourselves. In atheism, monism, deism, theism, God is not our savior. In Christianity, Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our hope. So the angel announces, right? Jesus is savior. You have a savior. You don't have to save yourself. Jesus is your Lord. He's God, he's sovereign, he's worthy, he saves. And Jesus is Lord whether you recognize him as Lord or not. But even better for you is when he's your Lord, right? Because when he's your Lord, that means you belong to him. And that means he lives in you, and he saves you, and he loves you. That means he intervenes in your life. He's active in your life. He hears your prayers. He answers your prayers. When you're tempted to sin, he can help you because he's been there when you're hurting, when you're lonely. He can be there when you need wisdom. He can provide that to you. He's working all things in your life for your good. And when you die, he'll be there to deliver you to heaven. And this is what makes Christianity different than all of these other worldviews. Back when I was uh, in seminary, many, many, many years ago, uh, working on my master's, going to seminary, I uh, was a youth pastor to church, but that didn't really pay well. So I had another job. I at had at a part-time job in Portland, working for a food brokerage. A, a food brokerage is just a local company um, that has a lot of salespeople that represent. Um, companies that can't afford to hire their own sales team. So, for instance, a really big corporation will set up sales offices all over the United States. But um, if you're a smaller company and you're selling products in stores, you can hire a food brokerage to represent you. And so I worked for a brokerage, and, and we had some, um, you know, we represented... Uh, um, Uncle Ben's rice and, you know, some candy companies and, and dog food and, and some and some cereal. and So my job was to go into stores. I worked in the Fred Myers and Safeways in the Portland area. And I'd go in there and represent our company and make sure that our, all our products were on the shelves where they're supposed to be. And uh, every now and then, a store would decide to reset the shelves. I think they do it every four or five weeks just so you never get comfortable with where things are. And, uh, and part of my job would be when they do that to go in and, and I'd be assigned a, a section of the store to reset. So I was working at this, this Fred Meyer's and uh, sometimes, usually, somebody from another brokerage would be there, too. There'd be a couple of you. And so I'm working in this Fred Myers and resetting. I don't even remember. It could have been, like, the pet food section. I don't know. We were resetting it, and there was another guy working with me from another brokerage. And his, na- his name was Chester. And we were going to be working four days together, side by side. So I thought we'd get to know each other. And so, you know, I said, hey, you know, my, my name's Bob. He's like, I'm Chester, and we're about the same age. And, and uh, you know, Chester said, I said, what are you doing in, in life? And he said, well, I'm working on my master's in philosophy. And I said, oh, I'm working on my master's in um, theology. And he said, oh, I'm an atheist. And I said, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And that started four days of working side by side. And we'd be having these debates. And, you know, like women would come down the aisle to get dog food. And they'd hear us and just turn around and walk away, you know. And we're kind of, for four days, we're like going at it. And we'd go out to lunches together. And I and, uh, just kind of, I felt like I was getting nowhere. And so finally on the last day, we're having, we're having lunch together. And I knew this is it. I probably never see this guy again. And uh, so I asked him, I said, I want to ask you a couple questions, Chester. I said, if, if it turns out that, that you're right and there is no God and I'm wrong, I'm like, and, and, and what will I lose? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, well, what you'll lose is you won't get to have fun like me and have sex like me and drink like me and all that stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, like 100 years from now, a hundred years from now, how will it make any difference? What will I lose? And he thought about it and he said, well, I mean, you won't lose anything, I guess. A hundred years from now, you won't lose anything. We'll be in the same, we'll be in the same place. And I asked him, I said, what if it turns out that, that I'm right and you're wrong? What will you lose? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, well, I guess probably everything. I said, what will, how, what will you do if, you're on your deathbed. You're breathing your last. You're like, "This is it. This is it. I'm going into the great nothingness." And you close your eyes, and all of a sudden, you open your eyes, and there's Jesus Christ standing before you. What will you say to him? And I can't actually repeat what he said, but basically, what he said was, "Oh boy, um, I'm," <laughs> you know, he's like, "Well, I guess I've lost everything." Now, here's what you need to understand. Christianity is not, we don't, we're not Christians because it's, it's like the best bet, right? Because it's like the most encouraging thing to believe. Again, what Luke's trying to help us understand is this, these are facts. This is a story that is rooted in reality. That's why he's naming Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and all this stuff. This happened. This is, this is fact. We place our faith in Jesus who is our Savior and our Christ and our Lord well, that's what we remember at Christmas time but I want to remember I kind of want to close it by encouraging you to think about how to respond to this like, what do we do with all this what do you do with it what do, what do I do with it well I want you to notice in this story what happened in verse 13 so the, the angels bring the message to the shepherds and then suddenly there was with the angel remember there had been one suddenly with the angel there was a multitude of the heavenly host Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now, it says that there's a multitude or a myriad of angels. It's the Greek word for 10,000, which was the highest number that they had a word for. Um, commentators believe he's just trying to say there's no end to it. In fact, some commentators believe that the angels basically, they basically emptied heaven and came down for this moment to celebrate what God had done. Now, these angels, think about this. These are angels who dwell with God in heaven. So all the time, 24-7, they see God, they see his glory, they know how great he is, how awesome he is, how loving he is, and, and they come down to earth, and you might be thinking, you know, they'd be like, well, we're coming down to earth, let's take a break, where all we do is praise God all the time, let's come down and hang out, let's go to Wendy's and have a burger or something. No, since all they do is they're like singing, and they're singing, and God is great, and they're glorifying God, because it's their main thing, right, in life, you keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing for angels is to, is to worship God, because he's that great. I don't think they're worshiping God because they have to, I think they worship God because they want to. Because he's that great. He's that awesome. He's that, he's that loving. Now here's why I find this interesting. Because they're celebrating God come to earth. Which really has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you. All right? God became a man, not an angel. He's not becoming an angel. He's not becoming one of them. Jesus is going to die for us. He's not going to die for angels. He's going to rise for us, not for angels. He's going to offer salvation to us, not to angels or the fallen angels. And yet these angels are so excited for you. In fact, I'd imagine sometimes they're probably more excited for you than you are excited for you. They're like, woo-hoo, you have no idea what this means for you. But I want you to notice three different responses to this, this good news. That I think it's good for us to remember this time of the year. And the first response is, to share it. Now notice what it says. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another let us go to Bethlehem. The angel didn't say go to Bethlehem. They are like, hey, why wouldn't we do this? Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So, I mean, they want to go. They want to, somehow they find somebody um, to stay behind and watch the sheep. And they make the one to two mile journey to town, to Bethlehem. They're going through the town. It's crowded. There's a lot of people there. They're listening for a baby cry. (laughs) Anyone seen a baby? Anyone heard anything like that? Any screaming, you know? They eventually tracked down the baby boy who was just born and they went with haste and they found mary and joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough and when they saw it notice when they saw it they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child in other words they just shared the good news when they saw mary and joseph they're like you are not going to believe what we just heard Now think about this. They haven't been to a church membership class yet. They haven't heard a sermon on evangelism or invest, inform, invite. They have no strategy. They haven't been to a mission seminar. They they haven't got the notebook, right? They just passed along what they knew. Like, here's all we know, okay? It's gonna take us 10 seconds to tell you everything we know about Jesus. He's the son of God and he was born, <laughs> yeah, right? And this is, this is him. And so they share what they know. They had some good news, just had a little bit of the good news. Here's the thing, you have a lot of good news, all right? You have a lot of good news. Like, you know more details about the gospel than these shepherds knew, you know more about Jesus than they. They didn't know what his life was going to be like. They didn't know that he's going to work miracles. They didn't know he's going to walk on water and feed thousands. They didn't know that he was going to raise people from the dead. They didn't know that he was going to go to the cross. They didn't know that. They didn't know that he was going to die for your sin. They didn't know that he was going to rise from the dead and conquer sin and death. They didn't know any of that stuff. They didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. They just told what they knew. Here's my question Who do you need to tell? about Jesus. Who is it right now in your world today? I have that question in your notes. This is not a it's not a nice feel good question to ask you at the end of the sermon. I'm asking you sincerely, who is it? What's the name of that person? Cuz I feel like if you don't write it down, if you don't hold yourself accountable, I mean this is life and death stuff. Why in the world, I mean you could say why would the shepherds stay with their sheep? and not go see Jesus and tell what they'd heard. Why would we ever keep our mouth shut when we're around people who don't know Jesus? Why would we do that when we have the good news? Who do you need to tell about Jesus? And especially, folks, again, be careful about the shepherds in your life that you look down on. Everyone needs Jesus. Here's the second response. This This is different. And Mary, Mary does something different here. It says, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now it says everyone kind of came in, heard the story, wondered. That means to kind of admire and move on. Like admired it and moved on. Like a lot of us do at church. We come, we hear messaged, cool, gone. Forgot it, didn't take notes, never think about it again. And this is kind of the way these people are doing this here. They kind of hear it, that's cool, that's wild. And they go, that's not Mary. Mary does two things. She treasures and she ponders. The word treasure means to gather together so that you don't lose it. So she gathers all this together, all the stuff that she heard, and then she ponders. The word ponder means to internally converse. We, today we call it talking to yourself. We actually give people medication for that. Like internally talking to yourself, consulting, considering, debating, thinking. She's contemplative. That's what Mary's doing. She's contemplative. She receives. Think about all uh, all this stuff Mary needs to process, right? All right? She gets a message from an angel. That's something you might want to process, right? Um, she's going to have a son. It's going to be Jesus. She visits Elizabeth, and the baby leaps in, her, in, her, in Elizabeth's womb. Um, she gives birth to Jesus. She gets a hold. She's holding her Lord and her Savior. She's looking him in the eyes. She's holding the Son of God. She gets to worship him. The shepherds show up. They're like, you're not going to believe this. We're just out watching our sheep, hanging out, having some beef jerky, and this angel appears to us, and he tells us about this baby. And we came here, and we found you. Do you know who this boy is? Mary's like, yeah, yeah, I know. It's a little unnerving, isn't it? I've been thinking about it. It's so amazing that Mary basically stops and takes some time to think and to ponder and to consider and to wrestle. I think some of us need to probably do that sometime in the next couple of days. I've had a lot of conversations with people last night, today. Hey, how's it going? How are you ready for Christmas? I'm so busy. I've got so much to do. I've got so many things. And here's one thing I hear from people a lot. I could just be happy to slow down and not have Christmas be so crazy, but everyone around me is expecting They're expecting things, they're expecting parties, they're expecting stuff, they're expecting gifts, all of this kind of stuff. And I've been telling everyone the same thing. Well, somebody's got to stand up and do the right thing. Maybe it should be you. Maybe you need to stop what you're doing. Maybe you need to tell the people around you to stop what they're doing. Maybe you need to take some time to get alone. Spend some time to ponder. Spend some time to read God's word. Spend some time to think about what what have you seen? What have you heard? How has God answered your prayer? What has God done for you? See, a lot of times God's just raining blessings down on us and we don't enjoy any of them. We don't enjoy them because we don't stop to think about them, to identify them, to just kind of soak in them. I really want to encourage you sometime between now and Thursday to stop. If you got your phone, you might just put it on there right now. <laughs> Sunday, 6 o'clock in the evening, Monday, whenever it is. When are you going to do it? When are you gonna, no one will do it for you. No one. And here's the last thing. Worship. Three great things to do this Christmas season. Share the gospel. Ponder the miracle Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So they're not like Mary. They're, they're not contemplative. They're loud. They're singing. They're yelling. They're fist bumping. Woo! You know, we just saw Jesus. We just saw who's going to redeem us. And they're, they're celebrating. There's joy. There's hands in the air. Their saviors here. See, the birth of Jesus is something to get excited about, too. There's a time for quietness. There's a time for stopping. There's a time for singing. There's a time for praying. There's a time for celebrating. My question is, how will you do that this Christmas? Now, hopefully, you've already been doing that today. You've already been worshiping today. In a minute, we'll sing one more song. You can have a chance to do that again. But how will you celebrate? And I would encourage you to take some time this week to worship God privately. Set some time between you and him to be alone, to ponder and then to worship. And by worship, what do I mean? Just pray to him, just talk to him, thank him for coming down for your salvation. And then take some time to worship with other believers. That's also a big part of what we do, to worship corporately. Maybe you need to have some time to worship with your family this week. Maybe your grow group's getting together this week. You're going to have an ugly sweater party. That's cool. That's great. But also take some time to to celebrate, to, to worship as well. I would encourage you to join us on Christmas Eve. We're going to be here at four and six o'clock. It's going to be packed, but we're going to just take some time to do exactly what we've been talking about. We're going to, I'm going to share the gospel. We're going to do that. Um, We're going to take time to ponder and be quiet. And we're going to take time to worship. We're going to do all of it on Wednesday night. It's going to be great. And maybe you can bring some people from your oikos who don't know Jesus, but we come not because we have to, but because we want to. We don't share the gospel because we have to because it's how we earn our way to heaven. It's because it's the gospel. <laughs> we want people to know. We don't spend time stopping and getting quiet because we have to, but because we, we want to. And I think for most of us, I, don't you think it's true that even in the midst of all the stress and the worry, isn't there deep down in your soul right now, don't just, doesn't just every fiber of your being want to stop? Yeah, so just do it. And if people get upset, just say, well, take it up with Pastor Bob. All right? (laughs) He doesn't care. So (sighs) let's pray together.